don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, thinking the volume, subterranean, atmospheric, and oblique territories. We stir the oven. Hello everybody, today my guest is Stuart Elden, who's a professor of political theory and geography at the University of Warwick in, uh, in the UK, uh, and uh, the, author, the author and editor of many books, uh, uh, many of which are uh, dedicated to the work of Michel Foucault, and more recently some uh, author book, uh, uh, the two last one would be uh, Terror and Territories, the, spa the Spatial Extent of Sovereignty, and uh, even more recently, uh, The Birth of Territory. Uh, he's also uh, blogging at Progressive Geographies, a very prolific and, uh, and uh, uh, extremely useful uh, uh, platform. Um, hello, Stuart. Hello. Uh, so we are here in uh, New York, in Brooklyn, uh, and uh, not in, uh, in Warwick. So uh, maybe just to start this conversation, would you mind telling us uh, what, you're doing, uh, what you're doing here? Of course. Well, thank you for inviting me to do this. It's yes, a pleasure. You. I'm at the Center for Urban Science and Progress at New York University. And Warwick University is a partner of this research center, which is a research center set up to look at the science of big data in relation to cities. And one of the things that's going on at the moment is to try to bring social scientists into the conversation with the people at um, CUSP, this research centre here. So that's been part of my role over the last few weeks, is to try to talk to people here and to try and work out where there might be some potential collaboration. I see. And, uh, well, we're, we're happy to have you in New York. <laughs> uh, uh, so for this, uh, for this conversation uh, uh, that we're going to have that will turn around uh, this notion of territories that you, you've been dedicating... Uh, uh, many many pages and uh, hours of work probably <laughs> but uh, uh, so for this for the, for the purpose of this conversation I, I'd like to propose to use as a as a sort of a spine uh, an article you've wrote that is uh, a little bit more uh, uh, synthetic uh, uh, than their their what six hundred pages. It's about 500 pages. 500 yeah. pages of uh, the birth of territory that I right. st still recommend. So. Uh, and uh, and um, so this article is called uh, Secure the Volume, Vertical Geopolitics and the Depths the depth of Power, which obviously I will, I will link to the page uh, of, the, of the podcast. And, uh, and uh, maybe to trigger this conversation, I'd, I'd like to even uh, quote the very first sentence uh, uh, that you wrote. Uh, for this article, and, and here I quote, the phrase, secure the area, is a common one in military and police situation. What happens if we take the vertical as a key question, taking the additional dimension into account, if security has to contend with volume? What would it mean to secure the volume? Uh, end of quote. And um, uh, so, yeah, I think I, I'd, like, I'd like to ask you a little bit about this notion of territory no longer being perceived as a sort of uh, our cartographic two-dimensional uh, two uh, dimension, but actually to really take into consideration the, the whole volumetry of, of, uh, of this territory. Would, would you mind telling us about that? 
Okay, it was it was an attempt to try to think about those kinds of questions. I mean, I hope that, that some of the work that I've done on territory before, both in the Terror and Territory book, but also in the Birth of Territory, was able to think about the fact that, that terrain is an important question, that a lot of military uh, st- strategy work looks at kind of, you need to be on top of the hills, that you need to gain the kind of the overview of the landscape, that you need to make use of this in terms of uh, battles and so on. And a lot of military architecture, as you know, is designed around those kinds of questions. If you look at the design of old castles and so on, it's kind of the, the ability that height might give you to survey and to, to um, defend a position that you've got, putting them on top of hilltops and so on. But I was thinking about this more in terms of contemporary issues, and I felt that a lot of work, and, and I'd include my own in this, was a bit sort of flat. It was looking at areas rather than volumes. So I started thinking about these questions, and one of the things that sparked my interest in it was um, Eyal Weissman's work, the Israeli architect, who's written some really interesting work about the West Bank, which was one of the things that I was drawing on for this article. But it seemed to me that that work could be linked to um, the vertical geopolitics work, could be linked to questions of aerial bombardment, could be linked to kind of the militarization of, of air and airspace. But it could also be linked, and this is what I think I do in the article that's maybe the development, is to say there's a lot of things going on below the surface as well. So height is not just above the surface going up, but it's also what happens if you go down. So there's a lot of interesting work on urban infrastructure, there's work on urban exploration, so somebody like Bradley Garrett's work, for example. And I thought, well, if we take all of these things into account, how could we bring these riches together and start thinking about spaces going up and down, not simply surface space, and to think about the, the question of security in relation to those issues? Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I'm relatively sure that uh, many of the listeners will be familiar with the work of A.L. Desmond, but maybe to, to, to summarize it for people who might have not uh, encountered it yet... Uh, uh, we can maybe talk about um, the, 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 politic- the politics of verticality that he's, right. uh, he's talking about in, uh, in his book uh, Hollow Land about the, um, the, the architecture of Israeli occupation in uh, the West Bank and East Jerusalem uh, so uh, with maybe uh, in terms of politics of verticality one paradigmatic example would be the, the viaduct in, uh, in Gilo in, uh, right. uh, near Bethlehem uh, could you and you have uh, actually? I'm, I'm talking about this viaduct uh, even uh, uh, more specifically. I mean, both because it is a paradigmatic example, but also because you have uh, in this article I was talking about, you have a photo that you took yourself of uh, of Gilo. Mm. Uh, so could you maybe describe us uh, the situation in in Gilo and this in in the context of this politics of verticality? Sure. The, it, it it's relatively well known that with Israeli settlements deep into the West Bank, they have to have some means of connecting them to um, parts of Jerusalem and parts of Israel itself. And that a lot of these, for, for they would say security issues, they want to connect them up in ways that means that they don't have to go through Palestinian areas. So what has happened is that some roads have been designated as only being able to be driven by people with Israeli license plates on their cars. Some of those roads became fortified. They would have fences or walls put up either side of them. And an extreme example of this is this viaduct that we're talking about, where you have an Israeli road on an elevated platform above a valley floor, and that that road is something that will connect up settlements to the rest of Israel. 
but that underneath this viaduct you can see along the valley floor a road that Palestinians are able to use. So the question that, that Eyal Weissman is raising in this is kind of if you think about space not as a simple surface that can be divided, one state meets another at this. If you start thinking about this in terms of a hierarchy of the, the Israeli access road, the settler road, over the top of, of the access roads for the Palestinians. And that's a, a classic example of it, but there's a number of other issues. So you have many roads that are either on bridges or on tunnels. Um, you have a lot of um, the kind of politics of excavation. And you have this both in in uh, archaeology they're about trying to find traces in the landscape you might have this in terms of um, bypass roads that, that don't just simply go around on a kind of a flat uh, topography but go above or go below in order to, to connect these places together so it's it's a striking image and um, it was the Israeli uh, political scientist Haim Yakabi who took me out on the, the first time I visited Israel and the West Bank and Haim took me to a lot of these places to show me some of these uh, situation. So many of the photos I took on that trip are in, in the paper. Um, when I gave the paper as a lecture, there were sort of 80 pictures in there, but the, the publication had to get down to, what is it, about 10 or 12 in the actual published version. But but a lot of these provided examples, I thought, and some of them come in, in A.L. Weissman's work. What I add in the paper is to look at the Israeli-Lebanon border um, and to try and show how there there's a vertical set of questions at stake. There's old tunnels there used to be, a uh, back in the, the old British colonial days, there used to be a, a railway that connected them up. This was one of the things that was blown up in the 48-49 war because they were, Israel was worried about this being used as uh, tunnels to smuggle people or so on. You can also look at it in relation to Gaza. Um, a lot of the goods come into Gaza despite the blockade through tunnels from, uh, from the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt. Um, and the, So the tunnelling and the, the kind of whole questions of it's not simply what happens on the surface. You can't simply put a fence up or a wall and that this is enough to stop movement, but people can go above it or below it. And these, these kinds of questions are things I'm interested in in that paper. Mm -hmm. And I think right now we've been talking about our uh, example of our, at our, an infrastructural scale, but even in the architectural scale, when you, you look at, their, at the Israeli settlements in, uh, in Hebron, uh, where... where Quite literally, you have you have uh, uh, Israeli settlers in habitats on their Palestinians' uh, housing. Right. That, that's another example, I suppose, of, of the politics of verticality. Right. I mean, I I have been to Hebron. Um, another Israeli political geographer, David Newman, took me to Hebron. Uh, Hebron is not a place that it's very easy to take a lot of photographs. Mm. So, so this is one of the reasons why I don't have good photographs yeah. of Hebron that could be used. But Hebron is a, a particularly sort of interesting and, and contested place for these kinds of reasons. And there are many others. Quite horrifying as well. It, <laughs> uh, well, absolutely. I mean, because you've got a large contingent of the Israeli Defence Force to, to protect and support uh, a relatively small Israeli settler population in the middle of a Palestinian-controlled area. So, yes, that was another example that, that could have been drawn on there. Uh, I didn't make a big play of it in this this article but it, but it was something yes that, that was quite important in terms of my seeing the ways that occupation was taking place within the West Bank mm -hmm. um, and yeah I think we can say that Hebron in, in, in to some degree is uh, is the most operates according to the same logics that we can observe all over the West Bank and East Jerusalem but but in, a, in an intensity that is uh, that is much Right. More uh, uh, that's much higher than than in any other places, and right. hence, 
enhancer a very very strong feeling of of, uh, of violence uh, that is in the air. Right. It, I mean, it's very very apparent there, but then you can see this in just about any site that you go to uh, in the West Bank to varying degrees. And the the um, the vertical and Al Weissman talks about this in, in great detail. But the, the way that uh, with some of the political rhetoric, so Ariel Sharon with the move towards the hilltops, that if the, the settlements could be built on top of hilltops, this didn't just allow Israeli settlers to be on those particular sites, but it allowed them to survey the whole valley um, around those those hilltops, and this gave them a strategic control as well as a, a sort of strictly speaking spatial or territorial control of those places. The, another place I talk about in the article is Area E1, which is a fascinating place that it was the um, NGO BIMCOM, who's a planning um, NGO planners for planning rights so it's set up by critical Israeli uh, scholars and, and practitioners uh, to look at what's happening largely in the West Bank and through Jaime Akabi I was introduced to BIMCOM and they've, they've taken me on a couple of tours into the parts of the West Bank and Area E1 is a place that I don't know any other way that you could get there if you didn't have a group like this that was willing to take you there. E1 is an area east of the furthest extremity of East Jerusalem on the road out towards Jericho, but it borders on the Israeli settlement of Mala Adumim. And that E1 is a strategically important area because if Israel builds a settlement there, it will almost completely cut the West Bank in two, into a northern and a southern part of the West Bank. So it would become a, a, an eastward expansion beyond East Jerusalem, annexed by Israel, although not recognized internationally as legal annexation. But from East Jerusalem, through Area E1 to Mala Admim and almost all the way to Jericho and into the Jordan Valley. Now E1 therefore is strategically extremely important. What Israel has done in E1 is to build everything but the houses of a settlement. So there's the roads, there's the transport infrastructure, so roundabouts, road signs, traffic lights, electricity pylons, all of these kinds of things are there, but no houses. And there's one building, at least the last time I was there, there was one building which is the biggest police station in the West Bank, on top of the hill and so you have the, the creation of all of the infrastructure and architecture of a settlement except for the houses so that they can in in following kind of the letter of the law but not really the spirit of it say that there is not yet a settlement in in this contested area but to all intents and purposes it's the, the creation of a political space that will make that possible at some future point mm-hmm. and may, maybe to to explain uh, a little bit more to the listeners uh, Malia Dumim is there is the biggest settlement in the West Bank Israeli settlement in the West Bank there's uh, about 60,000 inhabitants uh, out of their 500,000 uh, settlers in the West Bank and uh, and East Jerusalem and and earlier you were explaining the about the the, the viaduct and the tunnel of Gilo uh, as uh, uh, you, you use the terminology. Of, I mean, you use the, the, the narrative of Israel saying it is those roads are built uh, uh, for uh, security reasons. But obviously, the the counter narrative of it is just to maximize the the power the, the movement of the Israeli while minimizing and while putting Palestinians on other roads and being able to minimize their their own movement through checkpoints and right. and 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 uh, a certain amount of obstacles. And and when you go from uh, Ramallah to to Bethlehem, you you would you would quite simply need something like 15 minutes to go there by car if 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 right. the conditions were relatively normal uh or or if you would have an israeli uh, plate uh but for for palestinians 
in a normal time it takes 45 minutes and uh, this is with and this is going through you want zone and and this is uh again this is in normal time sometimes you just don't even get there so if um if the settlements that have been uh, uh actually decided to be built since their since their recognition of the UN as a Palestine as a as a uh, observing member of uh, of 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 the UN uh of the UN, uh, um, uh, Israel has uh, has said that they will build. Uh, I forgot how it was, but housing for maybe thirty thousand extra people. Right, that I, sounds I, possible. I forgot. Uh, I'm sorry. Those figures would need to be checked. But uh, precisely in the one areas, and therefore you could you could uh, you could expect uh, a little. You could expect even more uh, obstacle within their within their movements of Palestinians, and, and this notion of movements is particularly important, I think. And and you right. you've been you've been particular. I, I said you've been particularly interested in in the work of Foucault, but you also have been interested in the work of Paul Virilio, uh, who, right. who, who who talks a lot about about the notion of speed. So do you? I mean, I the way I perceive the West Bank myself is is very much based on this notion of movement, or or rather the impossibility of movement or the maximization of movement for the Israeli army and the Israeli settlers. So could you maybe could you maybe tell us more about your interpretation of speed and movement within these conditions? With with Virilio, the I find the most interesting work of his is his earliest work, mm. where he was still a practicing architect, where he wrote about the um, Atlantic Wall fortifications, which I, again I talk about in yeah. this paper, and that in a sense I find Virilio. So what is it about nineteen seventy seven when he writes the book on speed and politics? It's somewhere around that time. For me, Virilio becomes a less interesting thinker at that moment because I think that some of the early work on sort of space and geopolitics is actually some of the most interesting uh, questions that he's engaged with. But the the question, I don't know whether I'd use speed maybe as the category, but certainly of kind of temporalities of occupation. It's not just a spatial occupation. I think that is extremely important. And there are some people doing work on this. So a Palestinian friend, um, Maha Salman, is doing interesting work, I think, about the kind of temporalities of the checkpoints of the uh, ability of people or the, the, the preventing the ability of people to get between sites that maybe at some point in the past were a fa fairly short trip. And one of the things that's, that's crucial here, and I think this is something that unless you've actually been there and experienced it, you don't quite realise this. It's, it's not the idea that there is a wall or a fence or a barrier and that once you're over the other side of that you've gone roughly east of that that you're then in a space that is without barriers and walls and fortifications and so on there are any number of walls fences barricades destroyed roads roadblocks checkpoints all of this kind of is the the infrastructure that that makes possible what you were saying about the the relatively easy access for israeli settlers and of course for the israeli military but the ability not just to prevent movement but to make more complicated everyday life really for palestinians and that it it's arbitrary and so there's a very difficult um ability to predict the amount of time that a journey will take or whether a checkpoint will be open or whether the roadblock will be there and that a lot of um Prediction. So when I was visiting uh, Al Quds University in Abu Dhis, the Israeli academic in, sorry, in East Jerusalem. Well, I mean, in the other side of the of the. It, it's on the east side of the wall. Yeah. But and the wall actually cuts through part of the campus. It cut the football pitch in half. But the 
Al-Quds is the, is the Arabic name for Jerusalem. But they, they used to have a campus in East Jerusalem, which is, is not used as much as it used to be because so many of the Palestinians from the West Bank can't actually get mm-hmm. there. So a lot of the teaching has moved to the campus in, in a place called Abu Dis. And Abu Dis is one of the places where the wall is, is the most proximate. It's cut the, the, the village and it's the campus in, in, in two. So the Palestinian academics who were going there to teach, who lived in East Jerusalem, had a much longer route to take to get to the campus than they had before all of this uh, infrastructure was there. And the two people I were travelling with had different uh, residence status. And so one of them wasn't able to be in a car that went through certain checkpoints, whereas the other one was, so that the, the, the wife would drop the husband, he would go through a checkpoint on foot, and she would drive round to the other side to pick him up after he passed this. Because, but she needed the car, and she needed to drive because she needed to drop her children off uh, at daycare. So it, it, it introduces a, a long delay into what were previously relatively straightforward journeys that you could walk or, or bike or, or, or take a relatively short trip. But it also introduces an, the, the uncertainty of will you be able to get through? Will there be a problem today? Will there be a lot of traffic? Will there be? And, and that, that uncertainty can make a lot of planning very, very difficult for people in, in that situation. So it's it, the rhythms and the temporalities, or, or as you said, speed, I think it's a really important question to take into account, as well as the sort of spatial geographical nature of the occupation. And perhaps hasn't been as explored as it should have been. Um, so it'd be interesting if people are actually going to work on those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll go back to Virilio a little bit later and, okay. the, and the, the oblique because that's something that I'm right. very interested in, especially as an architect. But uh, maybe to continue along those lines, um, uh, and uh, I uh, very much enjoy the fact that you're, the situations you're describing are very much uh, daily life, non-spectacular situation, right. which is the way I think we should understand the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, which is we we when when we hear about it, usually it's because of a spectacular event that happened. Just read like uh, 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 hundreds of olive trees being burned by the army. Uh, we we get those news every day because it happens every day. However, for for just any any Palestinian living in the West Bank, um, uh, on on a daily basis, what's what's uh, the way the occupation is unfolding uh, on upon uh, uh, his or her life is very much in a non-spectacular way, and I, I think I think what you've been describing with uh, the idea of license and and permits and and uh, and dropping the kids at daycare and, right. and that's exactly what 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 most people are encountering and it's uh, we should we should really pay attention to this non-spectacularity of things. I, th- I think so. I mean, I think this is one of the questions that comes up for me out of Henri Lefebvre's work on, on everyday life. And that the point with, with everyday life for Lefebvre was that it was both kind of everyday, mundane, ordinary, non-spectacular, as you said, but also the everyday, yeah. the, the repetitive nature of this, that this is something, and this is a, a thing that works in, in the quotidien word that he uses in French, comes from Latin roots but it is that notion of something that happens on a daily basis that's a regular repetitive thing and later Lefebvre turns into this work on rhythm and rhythm analysis and it's the the contrast between different types of rhythms different types of temporality not simply linear temporality but but cyclical that happens on a daily basis that happens on a um, 
the cycle of the seasons, the kind of repetitive nature and how people experience time, say, in agricultural settings compared to in industrial settings with the kind of productivity of the working day and so on. So for me, Lefebvre's work on everyday life and the kind of politics of everyday life is extremely important. It's not to, to think of that as a kind of non-political set of questions. And I think, I think it's absolutely right that, that most of the time when we look at what's happening in Israel-Palestine, it is about the spectacular and actually it's the the repetitive everyday nature of it that also needs to be examined mm-hmm. people have done work on this but perhaps not as much work as, as maybe is, is required for this mm-hmm. and I suppose one other thing that we need to realize uh, is also the the complicity uh, the internal complicity of, uh, of, uh, of an entire class of Palestinian that, and we've been talking about that uh, with uh, Sofia Azeb in an, in another podcast. So I'm always enjoying making bridge <laughs> between right. between podcasts. Uh, uh, but um, but the idea that uh, the idea that the Palestinian Authority by by signing the Oslo Accords of 1993, for example, have, have very much participated to this way of despectacularizing the occupation, uh, while actually in Enabling uh, the Israeli army to fragment the fragment the entire West Bank into what I like to call the Palestinian archipelago, uh, all those islands of, of right. territories that are separated from each other and therefore that are extremely easy to cut from each other if if needed, uh, depending uh, from from very much the mood the mood of the of of, of the Israeli. Uh, uh, Probably lowest rank of of uh, officer to to actually uh, uh, government uh, this governmental decision, and uh, and um, and that that is something that probably would have not been possible without the active collaboration of the of the Palestinian Authority. Basically. I think so, and I think there's there's a lot of frustration about what the Palestinian Authority has done or is allowed to have been done. Um, that's not something I'm especially well qualified to talk about, and it sounds like your your previous podcast was much better on on those kind of questions. But yeah, th- this is something that is allowed to make ha- allowed to to happen through a whole set of complicated relations and interrelations, um, and it and it's a desperately sad situation. And I think I think a kind of a focus on almost what we might call the kind of mundane or the ordinary or, or people have looked at this in terms of um, so Joe Painter, a geographer, has looked at this in terms of what he calls the prosaic state the everyday, ordinary level at which the state or other um, sources of power intervene in, in lives and in this situation it's very, very stark but it happens in, in many number of contexts um, you could look at the United States for example and so on um, Alright, so let's let's maybe take a, a either a step back or a step uh, at yeah, at least a step back in the in the specificity of the problem we're discussing, and maybe let's go back uh, to Virilio and um, and to talk about this notion of oblique that you also talk about in this uh, in this in this essay that I was uh, refer referring at the beginning of the conversation, and um, and maybe to introduce it, I would say that. Uh, uh, this is a work that Virilio has been doing, uh, as you say, himself as an architect, but also in close collaboration to the other architect, Claude Parent, right. who, uh, who uh, still uh, very much uh, argue for uh, this uh, oblique, uh, the oblique function, which is uh, the name that they, uh, that they chose for, for this uh, sort of uh, unfolding uh, uh, continuous projects that went from... Uh, 
from great speculation projects to actually the uh, realization of, of it in in a, in a few buildings, uh, a few houses, and there in a church in Nevers in uh, in France uh, that that has a lot to do with the uh, bunker archaeology that I'm sure you will you will talk about. But uh, I'm actually, I, I actually don't exactly know the answer to that. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually very curious to hear you about your interest for, for the oblique because my, my own interest as an architect is its relation to the body and how okay. when, you, when, you, when you unflat the floor, you're able to uh, challenge the body in a, in a much more interesting way uh, than uh, than when you have a flat floor and 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 somehow I think there's a, I mean there's this one diagram that I, I will I will include in the page and uh, to for listeners to see what I'm talking about but this one very very uh, uh, simple diagram of by Claude Parent who just uh, has a sort of a, a figure walking along right. a, an inclined inclined plane and he's he's kind of drawing all the force all the force that are present, uh, that are active on this body. And uh, and to me, that kind of encapsulates why uh, this might be an interesting thing. But I'm, yeah, I'm very curious to hear you about it. I, I came across it because I was interested in Virilio's work, um, particularly, as I said, the early work, where he talks about political space and territory and the, the, the Bunker Archaeology book, which is on the, the Atlantic Wall, the fortifications that were built on uh, the western coastline largely of, of, of France to try to prevent uh, an invasion and Virilio kind of is in, interested in this because he says he grew up in this area, he saw these when he was a child uh, and that then he sees that there's interesting things in the design of these buildings that he can carry forward into his own architectural practice. So I was reading that work and I was thinking about you know, the standard way as I said, Virilio has most of his work has been looking at questions around temporality and speed and so on and information and so on but th there was this earlier Virilio where he was looking at these questions of space and so I just started reading some of this and what I took from it and I think as an architect you're taking slightly different things from it but what I took from it was that he was challenging us not to think if we were going to add in this other dimension from a, an area model of political space or territory to a volume that he was saying it's not simply about going up on a straightforward vertical axis at, at 90 degrees from the, the, the horizontal plane. That he was saying, we need to think about space in, in these dimensions, but we need to think about slope, we need to think about angle, what we're calling the oblique. And that that for me was useful because I thought it made sense of things that aren't simply to do with sort of um, a vertical sense of power of surveillance drone or a, a weaponized drone or a helicopter or a, some other kind of vertical sense of surveillance over or the the, the straightforward up-down architecture of, of high-rise buildings or something like that but it also helped us to understand the way that um, tunnels were made because tunnels rarely go straightforwardly straight down uh, or that you might have kind of things going at a, a slant angle so the slant drilling that uh, was a political issue in terms of Iraq and Kuwait in uh, the, the so-called first Gulf War one of the claims that Iraq had made was that some of the drilling that was going on beginning on Kuwait was going at an angle so that beneath the surface of the earth that it was getting into Iraqi um, territory in a sense that you could say so I was interested in, in the way that he was challenging that straightforward um, sort of up and down 90 degrees um, 
way of thinking about things, and that that was what I was taking from it. But it sounds like you're taking some slightly different things in terms mm-hmm. of the way it was affecting bodies and so on, which I think is interesting. I mean, the the the, the diagrams in both the, the function of the oblique work and in um, some of his other architectural writings are interesting around the way that they're thinking about that. But they're challenging any sort of straightforward idea of an up-down, uh, which is an intriguing way of thinking about these relations. But it, it starts to make you think about the entire volume rather than perhaps just the axes of a three-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. And that, that for me, was, was opening up a way of thinking about these kind of questions. And if I build upon what you just said, uh, I um, I realize that if if you have a, a strictly uh, vertical look down at, at the oblique, you're not you're not able to realize the condition of the oblique because you would see it flat. So right. to to uh, to to I mean it's kind of a trivial comment, but when you think of, uh, about it in terms of uh, what we started the conversation with, which is the idea that. Uh, something like a map what might not be able to kind of uh, um, uh, reveal the the territories that it that it describes because it's it's too much a, a two dimensional uh, uh, medium and um, it it makes me think that uh, uh, and Virilio and Parent have been have been designing uh, uh, quite exclusively in section uh, and okay. it'd be interesting to have a, a geopolitical uh, a t- a tool of representation that might be the section rather than the map, which obviously would fall into a, another binary problem. So uh, ob- obviously we need we need everything, but but I, I, I just feel that it's it's been an under underused tool that we might we might want to consider for the problems we we're we're talking about. Right. I mean, there are advances in mapping to to try and deal with some of these issues and even say the, the, the British Ordnance Survey map which is a telling name for the, the major mapping company in the, in the United Kingdom is called the Ordnance Survey so it comes from military engineering but it, it provides the maps that people use for hiking or biking or those kinds of sort of leisure pursuits uh, as well as road maps and, and other uh, and they have various techniques as most mapping companies do for how do you represent the kind of uh, terrain uh, within this and so that there will be contour lines on the map and that, that if you have learned how to read a map you can start to imagine what the actual landscape looks at there but what you don't get on that even the most sophisticated ways of doing that is any sense of what might be underneath perhaps the surface if, it, if there's a large tunneled out area or if, if something that, that the overlay function is quite difficult to, to represent on a two-dimensional map so people have experimented with different forms of mapping and and some of the new technologies are allowing this to do that but I wonder whether sort of the, the geopolitical imagination or the work of geopolitical people is maybe a little slow to catch up with some of those ways of thinking about these kinds of questions and if you look at um, a major city London is an interesting one here because the, the, the it goes back such a long way all sorts of different layers of things that are going on within that city so of course you have the underground railway tunnels and how those interlink and intersect below the surface but you have other kind of infrastructure projects below there so cables um, but you also have uh, the old abandoned mail train which used to deliver uh, parcels and letters through London which was another kind of form of an underground railway and, and people like Bradley Garrett have opened up kind of almost literally these spaces and examined them and explored them you'd need an incredibly sophisticated map to be able to represent 
those kinds of spaces that have been created underneath the surface of the city. Mm -hmm. uh, London, of course, has a, a buried rivers, lots of other things that have been done through the, the creation of the built environment over a physical landscape. So those kind of questions, and I, I, you know, I'm not somebody who's going to go and do that urban exploration myself, but I'm able to draw on the people that have done that kind of work to start to open up kind of a complexity around these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. and, and I found that Virilio's work was was helpful in, in starting to theorise and make sense of some of those questions. Mm. But uh, I suppose the point that I was uh, also trying to make is that the, the map, uh, again, un understood as as, uh, uh, as this model of representation from from that that um, uh, uh, overlook at at, uh, at what it's representing as a sort of uh, more or less conscious. Uh, 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 wheel of domination from I mean the sort of transcendental uh, right. whereas whereas something like the section it, it may be a prejudice from my end but I feel that the section is much closer to uh, the matter and maybe the atmospheres I mean in the in the in your essay you you talk about uh, Peter Sloterdijk uh, uh, book um, uh, t uh, terror from the air right that I was interested I think you said that there the correct translation would maybe be uh, aircraft or uh, air airscape sorry no uh, no I'm sorry. Like air quake. Airquake, sorry. <laughs> so just as you have an earthquake yeah an earth tremor airquake yeah airquake which it's I saw Luftbeven in the German mm. um, now terror from the air you can kind of understand why why a publisher went with that and that's certainly one of the things that he's talking about but he's he's talking about air being the target mm -hmm. not just the people that are within it um, I mean we there's lots of different questions kind of floating around in that yeah. but, but what I was interested in in terms of what you were just saying about I'd, I wonder whether it is as simple as the section is a is a um, probably not <laughs> but but I think the section is is trying to get at the materiality of space in in the three dimensions mm -hmm. but the the question is, and I wonder whether this would be still the case with, with the section, is the map as both a representation and a tool of creating a situation, political situation. So if you look at the way that maps were used in statecraft historically, and if you look at the, the sponsorship of large-scale cartographic projects, uh, France with the, the four generations of the Cassini family, or if you look at the, the Mason and Dixon surveying or the Jefferson um, Rectangular Land Survey of the United States. If you look at um, maps that were created after the Treaty of Tordesillas at the end of the 15th century, a lot of the sponsors of these large-scale cartographic or charting, if it was at sea, projects were states or other large-scale political actors who were seeking to get a sense of what it was that they were trying to control and that then the map would actually be useful in terms of the maps that could be given to military forces or that the maps could be used for census data or for other kinds of techniques of statecraft that, that require these kinds of maps and, and surveys and charts and so on. So so the point being, you know, these are not just simply, you know, in a neutral sense, representing a kind of a reality, as problematic as that mm -hmm. term is, out there, but they're helping to produce that. So if you look at the work of somebody like Brian Harley, for example, in cartography, Harley's work was was extremely useful in there, and he was bringing people like Foucault and Derrida into critical work on cartography, and talking about the kind of map as a tool of power, which I find very useful. And then there are people of a, a more recent generation who are doing important work around those kinds of questions, and also taking it into the use of 
geographical information systems and so on, and the, the mm. kind of the cartographic imagination of those kinds of works. So Jeremy Crampton, who I've worked with on Foucault, we edited a book on Foucault and geography together, Jeremy Crampton involved in the kind of critical GIS work. Or somebody like, on the sort of the history of this, somebody like Christian Jacobs, um, the Sovereign Map book would be a good example of kind of how maps were used by states and, and, and other practitioners. So I'm not a, a, in any sense an expert on the cartographic, but it, it intersected with a lot of things I was interested in in terms of territory. So I read quite a bit of the work that was written around those kinds of questions. And there are, there are many other people who've worked on those, those kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe I should point out that uh, you and Jeremy Crampton uh, wrote a book, uh, ed edited a book edited. called uh, uh, Foucault and Geography, that right. I highly recommend. Uh, um, maybe to, to spend the last 10 minutes of this conversation, we there's something that I'd like to talk about, which is not uh, in this essay I started to uh, uh, refer to, um, but uh, there's some things that I'm always interested in, which is to to consider a piece of literature or a piece of cinema or uh, uh, even a piece of art, and maybe to 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 extract from it a sort of political reading. And you've been doing that with uh, one of the classic of uh, of uh, English playwright, which is uh, King Lear of uh, Shakespeare, and uh, and I'd like to ask you more about that in uh, in relation to to this idea of territory, uh, uh, maybe to sum up the to sum up the plot of uh, King Lear for non uh, British educated race <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> people. Uh, so King King Lear uh, is. Uh, is retiring and is um, he is uh, is about to divide his territory uh, into three for his three daughters uh, Gunriel, Regan, and Cornelia, and um, and uh, Gunriel and Regan are are, are uh, flattering uh, their father, who uh, who therefore uh, uh, do give them their 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 piece of land, but Cornelia uh, this. Uh, affirms that uh, there is no way she can put in words uh, the love that she has for her father and he thinks that she's just uh trying not to not to uh, uh to praise him so she uh, she he she's being des desinerated hence uh hence uh, uh some major territorial issues <laughs> resulting from there and uh and uh if I remember correctly, I think it's uh, it was in uh, Ran Land that uh, uh, Kurosawa did uh, an adaptation, I yeah, think, of King Lear. That's right, the yeah. Japanese yeah. samurai version. Yeah, but, which, but of course, Kurosawa turns it into the sons yeah, yeah, rather than the which daughters. Which is a little bit of uh, chauvinism here. <laughs> uh, but um, so, please, can you can you tell us what is your your territorial interpretation of of King Lear? I think this is okay. So, so I was interested in the play because it's it's one of two plays by Shakespeare that uses the word territory singular. There are some other plays that use territories, plural, but, but territory in, in Lear. And the, the story is about this initial division of the kingdom between the, the three daughters, but really it's about the, the men that they're married to. So it, the, the two eldest daughters are married to the Duke of Albany and the Duke of Cornwall. Albany is pretty much the north and part of Britain, so Scotland and some areas to the south of that. Cornwall is a much larger area than the current county of Cornwall, but it's largely the southwest of the, the island. And the idea is that the middle portion, which will be given to his youngest daughter, Cordelia, who is not yet married, 
and she's either going to marry the King of France or the Duke of Burgundy. So it's partly to do with a kind of a legacy issue of a king who's nearing the end of his life, who has this question about kind of inheritance and about what's going to happen to the kingdom he's built up after he's gone. So there's a question about the kind of large-scale division of, of land or territory that's going on in the play. But I was also struck in the play that the subplot, the main subplot of the, the play with the Duke of Gloucester is about the inheritance to his two sons, one of whom is a legitimate son and one of whom is a bastard son. Now, he's tricked by Edmund, the bastard son, into thinking that the, the legitimate son is, is betraying him and he's going to murder him and so on. And so he finds ways... He says, I'll find the means to make you capable, i.e. able to possess and inherit property. That, that Edmund is described at one point as you unpossessing bastard, that you're a bastard and therefore you're not allowed to inherit down the legitimate line. So there's a, a subplot about property and land at a sort of smaller scale of a, a, a nobleman giving to his children at the same time as there's a major plot about the king dividing up the kingdom between the three daughters and the people that they're married to and so on. So I was intrigued by it as, as one example of a play where there's this kind of uh, spatial politics or land politics, some of which is directly territory, but, but maybe political space at different kind of scales. So the idea with the paper was to, to show how territory, land, and then a third category, earth, work in the play, and to, to outline what I called Shakespeare's geopolitics geopolitics in a kind of almost literal sense of geo being of the earth or of the world or of, of, of land and the politics of those kinds of questions and the idea with it is that the the reading of Lear which was published as a, a standalone article but the idea is that that goes with some readings of other Shakespeare plays in a book about Shakespeare and territory and the idea is there that I use different Shakespeare plays to open up different aspects of the question of territory. So one of the things that I've tried to argue in, in much of my work on territory is that territory is a complicated concept rather than simply being complicated in every particular instance. I mean, we talked about Israel-Palestine. We could talk about territorial disputes across the world, territorial arrangements, so like Antarctica. Or... Territory is certainly complicated in practice. What I've tried to suggest is territory is actually complicated in, in, as a concept itself. It's not a straightforward concept that is simply applied in, in different ways. So I've tried to argue in other work that we need to take into account economic questions, strategic questions, legal questions, technical questions, these different types of aspects of the politics of this, this concept. So the idea with Shakespeare is that I can open up those and other aspects of territory through readings of different places. So Lear, the kind of corporeal body of the state that's a, a book chapter i've got on coriolanus uh, that i can do the legal through a reading of the opening scenes of henry v that i can look at the kind of economic questions around land through richard ii so richard ii is accused for example of being the landlord of england not the king and that he says himself we are enforced to farm our royal realm that the, the realm the kingdom that the land or the, the territory you might say of the kingdom is something that he can extract economic rent from mm -hmm. and um, he's accused of it's now leased out like to a tenement or pelting farm it's become something that is um, the agricultural yield that can come for it or the the animals and their furs that might come from it and that you can gain some kind of economic benefit from this and this is one of the issues that, that's at stake in the whole play about his position in relative to other people so I've got a geopolitical reading of Hamlet that Hamlet tends to be read as a play inside the court of Elsinore the uncle 
the son, Hamlet, and the murdered father and his mother, who's now married to the uncle. And so it tends to be looked at as a kind of family play within a quite small geographical space, this, this court. The way I try and read it is to say, yes, that's all going on. But there's a much wider geopolitical framing of Denmark as a small kingdom with two powerful neighbours of Norway and Poland and that there's conflict over land and, and what's the land that the court of Elsinore is actually on it's land that Hamlet the father had won from the previous king of Norway by defeating him in battle and that his son Fortinbras is now trying to take that land back and so there's a kind of wider sort of geopolitical frame within which and there's a number of other plays in Shakespeare that I think open up questions around territory so The Tempest is the obvious colonial play I want to read The Tempest in relation to probably Pericles, Othello and Antony and Cleopatra as all having plays that are around sort of colonial possession and division of territories and, and sort of spheres of influence and so on. So the idea is, is that Shakespeare allows me to return to a lot of the questions around territory that I've done either very politically, so in the Secure the Volume paper that we were talking about or the Terror and Territory book, or very historically in relation to the birth of territory, which is a much more um, historical study, and that this maybe allows me to open up those questions of territory in a slightly different way, maybe for a different type of audience mm -hmm. around them. And I, I hear you saying that their uh, ter territory may be a, a, a complicated uh, uh, notion to begin with, and it makes me think that uh, and maybe having a sort of a, a, a reading of it that might have uh, something to do with... Uh, with uh, Gilles Deleuze, uh, which is the idea that the territory is is is, um, is a is an animal property. It's not a human property. It's it's something. It's a it's it's it, it is a performative uh, be performative behaviors that determine what the territory uh, might be from the animal, isn't it? Well, I find that work really problematic. Yeah, and uh, the 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 lineage of these kind of concepts and so on is that in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century animal ethologists took the notion of territory which before then had been applied to human behavior and they used this to try to understand how animals conduct themselves in relation to the environments that they're in so it may be about hunting grounds or mating grounds and marking of, of places and so on to, to control them and they called this territory and the behavior that created these territories they called territoriality mm -hmm. then human geography read that animal literature and started to pull the concepts from there into human geography initially this was in kind of sort of biological sort of almost determinism kind of type literature humans are like other animals in terms of marking and controlling the spaces that they're in and so on and all sorts of types of behavior that were used to to understand this so people like robert ardry and the, the um, territorial imperative and so on and then in the 1980s uh, another geographer robert sack tried to pick up on that idea but to distance it from a purely kind of biological drive and say it's more a kind of social strategy or an instinct or something those lines. and the problem I have with this is that then it becomes that territory applies at just about any scale from down to a kind of single room to a area of a town up to the nation state or even to global questions and that territoriality is seen as the way of understanding and making sense of territory and for me, territory is a little bit more of a specific concept than that. And although marking and controlling and excluding and protecting and so on are important strategies in relation to territory, I think there are a whole set of bigger questions. So it seems to me that the territoriality debates led geography down a kind of a, a wrong path. 
for quite a while, and I think that maybe we need to rethink that kind of basis. Now, Deleuze and Guattari are kind of um, a complicated relation to those kinds of things. They're coming from a different set of debates because they're looking at, at Francophone debates rather than Anglophone debates and so on. But some people have picked up on things in their work around deterritorialization, re-territorialization, and the kind of performance of these things. So in A Thousand Plateau, the kind of performance of birdsong as a means of marking a territory, what they call the refrain and so on. And some of that work has been picked up again in, in geography and related sort of spatial studies debates and so on. What I quite like in their work is the, the idea of a relation between deterritorialization and re-territorialization, which for me links to kind of ideas of territory is not something that's produced once and for all and then is fixed, but territory is continually being made and remade and contested and transformed and uh, through continual struggle and through state spatial strategies and resistances to those and different groups and so on. That I quite like. What I find problematic is where the kind of vitalist biological drive elements come in or the way that their work on deterritorialization got picked up in some sort of globalization debates as if it meant the end of territory or the territory no longer matters. That seems to me to be another problematic mm -hmm. thing that's come out of some of the ways that they've been read. So it's less than I have a problem with their own work. It's some of the things that have been done with it that mm -hmm. I find are problematic. But if it's deterritorialization, re-territorialization, then I think that's useful. It's a dynamic, processual kind of way of thinking about territory. That, I think, is a useful way of thinking about it. And if modes of shaping and controlling and protecting spaces if you want to call them territories that i think is useful but not if it's a kind of biological drive kind mm -hmm. of mechanism in there so so i have some problems with the way that that work has been picked up and used um i see well we we started with a, a territory in its verticality and we we can maybe end with this idea of the the refrain i mean the the ritournelle uh as they as they say that uh, to maybe a uh, uh, just evoke the idea of a, of a sonic territory that may be an interesting uh, an interesting way to to uh, uh, open the imagination here uh, well Stuart thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk to me and uh, I'm sure I speak for many by uh, wishing you good luck to finish uh, your upcoming book about uh, the last decade of Foucault's work right and yes. and uh, when when will it be uh, when well will it, be it should be out in 2016 all right that's oh, the wow. plan okay um, so I need to finish it I see um, but I'm hoping I can finish it uh, maybe beginning of next year okay. and then sometime in 2016 that's the plan all right well, and then after that hopefully I can turn to Shakespeare more seriously yeah. Well, I, I very much look forward to all of that. Uh, thank you so much, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.